The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. For any regular listeners, as you know, we are currently engaged in this series of a verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Thessalonians. In an effort to avoid redundancy, I will skip the usual introduction, since I think we've repeated it sufficiently at this point. By reminder, we had just opened the book of 1 Thessalonians and uh, had begun chapter 1, And in Paul's salutation here, we see in verse 3, where Paul had begun to thank God for the faith that was growing and the charity that the church had toward each other. Then immediately thereafter in verse 4, we saw that Paul was boasting with regard to the patience and faith that the Thessalonians were showing in the face of severe persecutions and tribulations which they were enduring. In verse 4, we took what amounts to a sidebar and took lesson from 
Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, wherein there again Paul points out what appears to be a logical cycle, if you will, which flows from a result of being persecuted or being in tribulation. In that instance, Paul points out that persecution and tribulation ultimately produces patience, experience, and hope, and that ultimately we, are, we grow through that process. Further, we drew parallel, if you will, uh, with Romans 5, 1 through 5, with Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, wherein uh, most people refer to that as the golden chain of salvation or the ordo salutis of salvation, and how the two appear to have a uh, connection, if you will. In verse 5, going back to 2 Thessalonians, we see Paul point out that the persecution and tribulation and the results thereof are all a, what he refers to as a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. That being said, in verse 6, we saw that Paul points out and reminds the Thessalonians, and by extension us, that God will recompense tribulation to them who trouble you. In other words, those who cause the person in tribulation are not going to go unaccounted for. They will receive their just rewards. In verse 7, Paul answers the question as to the when aspect of this recompense happening, saying that uh, the Thessalonians, and by extension we, should rest or take comfort in the fact that when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that in verse 8, Christ will, by flaming fire, take vengeance on them that know not God, and that do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those that cause persecution and tribulation will receive their just punishment. This then brings us up to speed with where we left off in our last episode. And if you will, if you haven't already, open your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. We'll pick up where we left off. In verse 9, Paul says, speaking of those that will be punished, he says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here in verse 9, we shouldn't imagine that this punishment that's referred to is limited to only those who were causing tribulation and persecution to the Thessalonians and the surrounding community, but rather this is a more global statement that refers to everyone, all mankind, who have existed from Genesis 3 onward and who will be justly punished as a consequence for their rebellion against God in the garden. So in essence here, that Rebellion has come full circle, and now all those throughout time who have rebelled against God since Genesis 3 will receive their just reward. You see, what we need to remember here is that our souls, 
The soul of every human being is created with an everlasting eternal quality, while at the same time our bodies, our physical bodies, wither, grow old, become sick and die. But our souls are eternal. So the only question is, where do our souls spend eternity? Well, because we all sinned in Adam, we all justly and rightly deserve God's wrath and eternal separation in hell. But the good news is that because God is merciful, gracious, and loving, God sovereignly chooses whom he wills to rescue some to himself to eternal life and fellowship in his presence. Here in verse 9, we're simply seeing the ultimate fate of those who have not been chosen to be redeemed and who, by a result of their choice to rebel, are being punished in everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, as is stated in verse 9. Verse 10. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So verses 5 through 10 continue the theme of placing persecution and tribulation into a proper biblical world and life view. Viewed with discernment from an eternal perspective, tribulation provides visible evidence of God's righteousness and perfect sovereign justice and judgment. Let's look at the logical flow thus far. Number one, in verse five, simply put, the more that God's elect suffer for the sake of the gospel and for Christ's sake here, the greater the reward is in heaven. This is not a self-imposed suffering or martyrdom. Rather, the suffering brought by the world of non-believers who persecute by various means. Two, as we look at verses 6 through 9, we see Paul reminding the Thessalonian church and us, saying, Take comfort, and let some of the pressure be relieved in the knowledge and assurance that God is going to take vengeance on those who are in rebellion against God and who cause persecution upon his saints. While we suffer temporarily, they will suffer eternally. And finally, three, our ultimate reward, as we saw in the last few verses, is to be glorified with him, that is, Jesus Christ, at his coming. Verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power. So here, this is the culmination of this chapter and the issue of trials, persecution, and suffering. In many circles, the thinking is that we are blessed by God whenever and wherever we are able to escape trials, persecution, and suffering. 
Today, some, in fact, would seem to suggest that the presence of trials and persecutions suggests that we are somehow outside the will of God and that if we are truly walking with God or the more we are walking with God, then the more we will be spared trials, persecution, and or suffering. Uh, further, some would even promote the idea that those who are truly children of God will be marked with success, wealth, health, well-being, prosperity, etc. But here, according to Paul and uh, arguably the Holy Spirit, the opposite is true. Uh, we see that it's actually considered a badge of honor and a privilege to have trials and to be persecuted and to suffer for the sake of Christ. And this is not true because we enjoy pain or suffering, but rather because we understand at the end of the day that like a diamond, pressure is required for transformation. And without it, we remain like coal, which is only good to be burned. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Note here that Paul's perspective from the past 12 verses is that the patience and faith in the face of persecution and tribulations, which the Thessalonians are exhibiting, give reason for Paul and other churches to glorify God. And this too should be our perspective and the reason and the purpose and the motivation which sustains and keeps us through all trials, persecution, and suffering. Moving to chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, in verse 1, we read, Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So, first things first, we see that there is in fact a proper chapter break here because there is a change in the thought process and the topic which Paul is talking about. Second, see the word translated coming, parousia, which is correctly translated as the coming and is classically interpreted as the arrival or the advent and the future visible return from heaven of Jesus to raise the dead, to hold the last judgment, and to set up formally and gloriously the kingdom of God. We have the term gathering together, which in the original Greek is episynagoge, from which we get our modern word synagogue. It basically means in, unto, or on, and God's house, place of worship, or assembly. So in essence, in verse 1, Paul is referring and making reference to the most important thing in the universe to the elect who were in Thessalonica that being the coming of Christ and their gathering together to him. Paul is taking that to get their attention and say, 
I'm pleading with you, I'm beseeching you to get their attention about something that he is going to now talk about. Now, since Paul is bringing up the subject of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together unto him, it behooves us to uh, discuss the matter so that everybody is on the same page. When Paul mentions the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, we need to clearly understand that the following topics are going to be ultimately under discussion in the various verses which are to come. Number one, we have the coming of our Lord Jesus the Christ. Number two, we have the rapture or the catching away of the church. Number three, we have the tribulation or the great tribulation. Number four, we have the wrath of God or the day of wrath. And finally, number five, we have judgment day. So let's look at these uh, subjects individually and talk about them a little bit. Number one, we have the coming of our Lord Jesus the Christ. In terms of the definition for this phrase, we have three possibilities. A, we could be referring to the first coming of Christ, i.e. his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, which we know at this point was a past tense event. B, we have the rapture in which Christ comes for his elect, the church, and those that are his elect in the church are transformed, caught up to meet Christ in the clouds and go together to heaven. Or C, the second coming of Christ in which Christ and his church return to earth to actually rule and reign. Now, as stated, definition A is clearly off the table since it's a past event. So, the only viable options for verse 1 are uh, B and C. For the purpose of this study, definition B is the event that verse 1 is alluding to. In order to more clearly understand the phrase, quote, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, unquote, refer to the study on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, for more information. Number two, second issue, the rapture or catching away of the church. We understand the rapture to be a supernatural event where God's elect, the church, who are in a faith-based relationship with Christ are transformed in the twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, and the dead in Christ are raised. Both groups are caught up to be with the Lord and taken to heaven when Jesus comes. The timing of the rapture has five options, which will be further discussed under the tribulation. They are as follows. One, the partial rapture, two, pre-tribulation, three, mid-tribulation, four, pre-wrath, and five, post-tribulation. For the purpose of this study, option two is the position which I believe is best scripturally supported along with the Jewish cultural framework. Number three, the tribulation, or the great tribulation. 
Generally speaking, if we do a survey of the available eschatological views regarding the rapture and the tribulation, we can find five theories which are proposed. Number one, the partial rapture view, where only those faithful believers who are, quote, watching, unquote, and or, quote, unquote, waiting for the Lord's return will be taken in the rapture whenever that rapture is. Two, the pre-tribulation view espouses the return of Christ before the great tribulation begins or God's wrath, which is poured out. Number three, the pre-wrath view. The pre-wrath view draws a distinction between the tribulation and or the great tribulation and God's wrath. This view states that the church will be raptured before God's wrath is poured out. Number four, the mid-tribulation view. The mid-tribulational view argues that the rapture will occur at the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation, or possibly when God's wrath is poured out. And finally, number five, the post-tribulation view. The post-tribulation view teaches that the rapture and the second coming are aspects of a single event occurring at the end of the tri uh, tribulation or great tribulation period. Now, typically, most scholars agree that the tribulation or great tribulation corresponds to some portion of Daniel's final quote-unquote week within his 70 weeks of years revealed in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The exact placement, duration, and timing of the rapture relative to this period is the question under discussion. In order to better understand the tribulation, it is further necessary to summarize Daniel's 70 weeks of years. Digressing to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, here we find Daniel, who is a Jewish scholar, and he's reading God's word in the scroll of Jeremiah. In doing so, Daniel realizes that God has prophesied that he and his people will be in captivity for 70 years and that those 70 years are, at this point, when he's reading, almost complete. As a result of prayer and personal repentance, God opens the faucet of, of eschatological prophecy by unveiling a corresponding pattern of 70 weeks of years where God reveals his overall plan of redemption for his people. Now, the specifics of Daniel's 70 weeks are a subject for another study. However, it can be summarized as follows for this study. Number one, most agree that the 70 weeks of years is equal to 490 Jewish years. Two, there is some debate about when the 490 years started. Three, there is also some debate about how to calculate these years and how they correspond from Jewish to Gregorian timing. Four, most people agree that the 490 years are broken up with some milestone events within the whole, 
but there is some debate as to exactly what and when those milestone events are. Five, one of the main theories is that 483 years takes us to the crucifixion and death of Christ and that there is another seven years still remaining somewhere in the future. Six, one of the issues under debate by some is the quote-unquote gap theory, which is an undefined period of time between Jesus' death and the last seven years, which is sometimes called the church age or the age of the Gentiles or the gap. Seven, there is a seven-year period left to conclude Daniel's 70 weeks of years, which is generally called the Great Tribulation. And finally, eight, there is an event yet future called, quote-unquote, the Rapture, where God's elect are caught up to be with the Lord, the exact timing of the Rapture relative to the Great Tribulation, and or the last seven years of Daniel's 70 weeks of years are under debate. Number four, the wrath of God or the day of wrath. Here, almost every scholar is in agreement that according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that the church, i.e. God's elect, are not appointed unto God's wrath. You can uh, refer to this study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, which we've already covered for more details on the Greek grammar, as well as the sotrological and eschatological implications. The conclusion is that in order for 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 to be true, there are only two options available to accomplish it. A, the church stays in the world, but God supernaturally protects them from his wrath, which is poured out on the world. Or B, God raptures, i.e. catches away and removes the church from the world, who are then kept in heaven during the period when God pours out his wrath on the world. Finally, we have number five, post-tribulation. Under this theory, proponents believe that the church and or all believers will have to go through the tribulation and or God's wrath for the entire final week, that is seven years, of Daniel's 70 weeks of years. Afterwards, the church or believers who have survived and have not given themselves to the Antichrist will be raptured along with the resurrection of any who died in Christ before or during the tribulation. Various explanations are given, but the main idea is that the belief that since believers are told that they will have tribulation in the world, that this tribulation has no distinction from the tribulation, or the great tribulation, or even God's wrath, which we must, uh, quote-unquote, endure. Uh, further, the tribulation and or God's wrath are seen as some purifying event which qualify or prove the worthiness of the elect. For the purposes of this study, I mention the existence and brief details of this theory, but 
frankly disqualify and dismiss the theory for the following reasons. A. God's elect having to endure God's wrath violates 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, and the soteriological efficacy of Christ's finished work where God's wrath against all sin was fully and finally poured out on Christ on behalf of all God's elect who are found in Christ, whether they be dead or alive, at the time Christ returns and before God's wrath is poured out on those who are not in Christ. B. This theory is completely contrary to the patterns and model found throughout rabbinic writings, the Jewish culture of the winter-fall festivals, the Moedim detailed in Leviticus chapter 23 and elsewhere, and which will be fully discussed in a study later entitled Eschatology and God's Appointed Days, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding model, which we have previously discussed. Finally, C, the idea that the church, God's elect, must endure both the tribulation and or God's wrath would provide absolutely no comfort or reassurance to the Thessalonian church who were already under persecution and tribulation. This was the context and the point of both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Remember, at this point, while Paul was writing both these letters, the church was under the mistaken impression that the day of the Lord had already come and that they had missed the rapture and that the persecution and tribulation which they were enduring, they thought, was in fact the tribulation and or God's wrath. And the purpose of Paul's letter, in part, if not whole, was to reassure the Thessalonians and to remind and correct the fact that the rapture will precede the tribulation, which is the only thing which would provide comfort in the midst of general tribulation. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me for the next. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah.